Exodus chapter 40, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses... He took the testimony and put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't have the habit, I don't know if I ever really did, of making New Year's resolutions. I don't know if that's uh, much of a thing anymore, 
It used to be, as I was growing up, people would talk about what are your New Year's resolutions, but I think that has kind of fallen out of favor. And, and it's probably fallen out of favor because most people have found out that their New Year's resolutions end up being kind of unrealistic. And by somewhere towards the end of January, they have uh, fallen away and they haven't been able to keep their New Year's resolutions. They leave them more discouraged than they started. Um, now, if a Christian at the beginning of a new year or at any time purposed to do two things, to do two things, to be filled with God and to be led by God, that would be a very noble aspiration, wouldn't it? At any time, first day of the year or whenever that might be, to be filled with God and to be led by God. Very noble aspiration, but that assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that God is willing to do the filling and that God is willing to do the leading. Well, what we have here in this last chapter of Exodus is we have New Year's Day. This is not what Jews celebrate as New Year's Day, Rosh Hashanah, these days, but this was the beginning of the second year. And that's how this chapter starts. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. It was a year since they left Egypt. So this is the, the second year. It's starting today. And this is the record of this first day of the second year of the life of this redeemed nation. They had uh, spent this year since they'd come out of Egypt. And they had uh, been at Sinai, Mount Sinai, for about nine months. And during about six of those nine months, they'd been working on these pieces that we've been going over and over and over, the veil and the table and the ark and the, the basins and the, the altars and the, the, the uh, candelabra and so on. They'd been working on these for about, as far as we can calculate, for about six months. So about half the year of their existence, they've been working on this tabernacle. And now they get to, we could call it New Year's Day, of the second year of their existence as this redeemed nation. And what we see here is that God is going to do two things. He's going to fill and he's going to lead on this New Year's Day. Now, what we have here, you've probably picked up, if you've been in this series, a great deal of repetition. We have gone through the list of these items. I don't remember how many times, but they've been given to us over and over, sometimes in detail, two times in great detail, and then sometimes in summary form. And now we have this last time through, but what we're doing this last time is they're all here. They've all been fabricated. They're all laid out, and now the job on New Year's Day is to erect the tabernacle. And what we have in the first 15 verses are the instructions for the, the setting up of the tabernacle. And remember, tabernacle means dwelling. It means dwelling. And so Here we have the instructions, and the prescribed order for setting up this dwelling was from the inside out, the inside out. And and briefly, you'll remember that there was the the smallest place, a square, a cube, it was the Holy of Holies, and the ark, the box, where God met with his people over that between the two cherubim. That was where they started. And then they went out from there. And then they they sealed that off with a veil. And then there was the furniture for the holy place. And then they they sealed that dwelling off with a tent over it. And then there was the courtyard. And then there was the border of the courtyard. So they went inside out. That's what we have described in verses 3 to 8. Now, they would have to perform this every time they went to a new place. This was a tent. 
and it was able to be popped up and it was able to be taken down. So this was not the only time they did this. They did this over and over and over. But they started in the middle at the center where God met with his people and then they built it outward. But then after they did that, Moses was to anoint. He was to anoint. And this word anoint is where we get our English word Messiah. It's, it's the verb to Messiah, uh, to anoint with oil. And he was to anoint the tent and he was to anoint all the pieces of the tent in verse 9 then you shall take the anointing oil special oil and anoint the tabernacle the dwelling and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy so the word to anoint uh, is this word to to messiah and to this word to consecrate is to holy so this kind of repetitious here and you will holify it so that it may become holy and what's the basic idea of holy? It's set apart. It's not common. It's not vulgar. It is set apart by God and for God. So you could read this, and you will set it apart so that it might be set apart. So it is distinct. It is for God's use. And Moses would perform this only once. So they would set it up and take it down every time they moved, but it would be set apart only one time. And that was the instruction. And then, as we looked at last week, once the structure is set up, then who would work in that structure? Well, those are the priests. And so the next instruction we have is in verses 12 to 15. We have the washing, the dressing. And you remember all the different pieces of the garment of the high priest? He was dressed head to toe, basically, well, barefoot, but, but he was dressed, the rest of him, with these very, very special garments that we looked at already. And uh, he was to wash, dress, once again, anoint to Messiah, uh, the, the high priest, and to consecrate or to set apart, uh, to make holy Aaron and his sons. And that's, we pick that up in verse 12. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, wash them with water, put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Do the same thing for his sons as well. Now, they were to serve as priests. What are priests? Priests are those who represent the people before God. They had other functions, but their main role was to represent the people before God by offering sacrifices. That's what a priest does. And this priesthood would be hereditary. And it would follow in the line of Aaron. Verse 15, anoint them, that is the sons, as you anointed their father, and they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And so that's the instruction of how to set this up finally once all the pieces are in place. And then we have, we have in verses 16 to 33, and here you'll see repetition. Then what? We have the actual execution. So we have the instructions for setting up the dwelling. We have then the setting up of the dwelling, verses 16 to 30. And they were able, this craftsmanship is, is quite remarkable, to, they, they were able to, to set it up in one day. And it said Moses did it, obviously he didn't do it with his own hands only, he had help, but this was, a, this was something that could be set up and taken down in one day. And on that, that first day of the second year, they set the whole thing up. Verse 16, this Moses did. 
according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It was set up. All the pieces in place, they put it up in one day. And you may have noticed as I was reading this, there is a refrain here. There's a refrain. And the refrain is, as the Lord commanded Moses. He did this, as the Lord commanded Moses. He did that, as the Lord commanded Moses. He did this piece, as the Lord commanded Moses. It's in verse 16, in verse 19, in verse 21, in verse 23, in verse 25, in verse 29, in verse 32. How many times is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we should be, we should be shouting and cheering at this point because, do you remember back in chapter 19, and then once again in chapter 24, if you were with us for this series, when, when Moses first takes the, the words of God to the people, and they have this, this exuberant, naive, maybe overly self-confident declaration, but there's something beautiful and tragic about what they say. Whatever the Lord says, we will do. They said it three times. Whatever the Lord says, we will do. And then we have that tragic interlude between these pieces of, of, of talking about the pattern of the temple and then the construction of the temple and now the setting up of the temple. We have this, this tragic interlude in chapters 32 to, to chapter 34 where the people immediately, quickly turn away from God. These people who had just said all that the Lord has said we will do and then we find them making and bowing down to and worshiping a golden calf and having the, the audacity to call this golden calf the ones, the gods that had led them out of Egypt. And then everything was held in the balance there for a little while. Will God remain with his people? Will he not remain with his people? Will he abandon them? Will he destroy them? And that's resolved. And God says, I will go with you. I will go up with you. I will remain with you. And he forgives them. And he continues to be their God. And he says, I will be with you. And so what do we have here at the end of the book? We have the representative of the people doing all that the Lord had spoken. We're back on track again. The people had said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And what does it say here? Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Moses did, as the Lord commanded him, we are back on track. The representative of the people is leading the way, and he is doing everything that the Lord has commanded. Now, there's something, a detail that we mentioned last week, and here it's spelled out in verse 20. Do you remember you started in the, the centermost piece of this, this complex and build outward? In verse 20, it talks about that ark, which is it's a box. He took the testimony and put it into the box, into the ark, and put the poles on the arks at the mercy seat with the cherubim above the ark, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set the veil, and they build out. What's the testimony? The testimony, you remember those tablets? There have been two sets of two tablets. The first tablets, you remember when Moses saw what they were doing in the camp worshiping the, the golden idol? He smashed the tablets. And uh, it, it, that, was, that was symbolic there. He was smashing the tablets and the, the covenant. It looked like it had been, been broken, smashed forever, but then God was merciful and, and they had broken their side of it, but God remained faithful to his side and, and God once again wrote on a second set of tablets that Moses prepared. And so Moses brought these down again and these were not broken. These were placed in this box at the center of God's dwelling 
place. Now, traditionally, these two tablets, you remember they're two, and they're written on front and back. Traditionally, we have just assumed, and I say we, Christianity, scholars have assumed that there were some of the commandments on one and some of the commandments on the other. And traditionally, this has been assumed to be the first four commandments on one, the commandments that have to do with, uh, with God directly, about worshiping God, not worshiping idols, about, about not taking his name in vain, about keeping the Sabbath day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first four. And then, then the last six have to do with our relationships with each other. Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery, etc. And it's assumed that, that that's what these were. Why else would they be divided in two? But as I mentioned last week, there is a, a suggestion from more recent research that these were duplicate copies. Duplicate copies. And, and they have discovered that in the ancient Near East, that when a sovereign would come and conquer or bring under his control a, a, a lesser nation to be his servant, his vassal, that they would make covenants. And what they would do is they would make duplicate copies of the covenant. And one copy of the covenant would be deposited in the temple of the sovereign, and the other copy would be deposited in the temple of the, the servant country, the servant people. And the idea was that both had their copies, and then both could appeal to that copy. They could say, this, these are the terms. Don't forget it. We have it right here, and you have it there. It's, it, we still do that to this day, right? Copies, so that everybody has the contract and everybody can appeal to it. But it's interesting, if that's the case here, and I think it's a fairly persuasive argument. We don't know for certain, but if that's the case here, both copies are deposited in the same place. Why? Because the temple of the sovereign and the temple of the, the servant people is the same temple, not two different places, but rather the same. Now, verse 33, we have a fitting conclusion to all of what we have seen beginning in chapter 31 the beginning of the, the description of what this, this tent was going to be about, we have, at the end of verse 33, we have a very fitting conclusion. It simply says, so Moses finished the work. It was finished. It was done. There was nothing else to do. Well, there was nothing else for Moses to do. But there was something of a problem here. Remember, what does tabernacle mean? Dwelling. It means dwelling. But nobody's dwelling there yet. It, it's an empty dwelling. And empty dwellings are kind of sad, aren't they? Nobody's home. Nobody lives there. It's, it's a dwelling, but the, the lights are out. The windows are closed. There's, there's nobody home. And so there is something left to happen. And that's where we have this, this amazing, amazing conclusion here in verses 30 to 38. Now, you should remember that one of the main points, if not the main point of Exodus is, God will dwell in the midst of his redeemed people. And we have seen different manifestations of that. We have seen this cloud on Mount Sinai. And we have also seen this cloud outside the camp. Do you remember what happened after the people sinned? Moses set up a tent of meeting, a temporary sort of tent of meeting. And where was it? It was outside the camp. Because, because what would happen to this, this idolatrous people if, if God dwelt in the midst of them? There, there was, this was dangerous for them. And so, so out of mercy, God sent his meeting place up 
outside the camp, and Moses would go outside the camp. And then he would come back inside the camp, and, and the people would watch as he went out and went in. And he would bring God's word to them. But that wasn't a, an acceptable situation, was it? To have God outside the camp, far away from the people. Or, now that we have a dwelling inside the camp, but it's empty. And so something needs to happen for God's dwelling to be where it should be in the midst of the people. And so what do we have? We have the cloud, it says. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are becoming the same place. There was that temporary tent of meeting outside, and now here the tabernacle, but it's becoming the same place. And it talks about a tent that was covering the dwelling. So the dwelling is kind of the inside, and the tent is kind of the outside of it. And here it says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That cloud's been with them all along, hasn't it, in some way or another. This is the cloud that led them as they were coming out of Egypt, that separated them from the Egyptians, that descended on on Mount Sinai, that was outside the camp in that tent of meeting. And now this cloud, it descends where? Right in the middle of the camp. It indwells the dwelling. Now this this dwelling is, is indwelt. There is someone there. And it says the glory filled the dwelling. So the tent of meeting, the dwelling, are one full place, no longer an outside the camp, no longer in the middle of the camp, but empty. And we have something of a surprise here in verse 35. And it might have been something of a shock, an unpleasant surprise. It says, verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Up to, up to this point, Moses has been the, the only one who's been able to do that. When, when God was, was talking about destroying all the people, he said, Moses, I'm going to make a new people out of you. Moses rejected that out of hand. But Moses was the one who could go outside the camp and he could meet with the people and his face shone. Or he could meet with the Lord and then meet with the people and his face shone after meeting with God. They, they spoke face to face. That's what it says, that, that there was no one like Moses who could, who could speak face to face to God. And now Moses, as was his custom, the tent of meeting is set up. Moses tries to go into the tent of meeting like he had always done. And it says Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. Something, something radical had changed here. Moses, the representative of the people, could no longer enter in on his own account. What's going on here? Well, things had changed. The dwelling was set up. The dwelling was set apart. The priests also were set apart. And so now there were priests. There were those official priests to represent the people and to offer sacrifices. So what had been Moses' unique, personal, intermediary role was now no longer simply a personal, unique role. It was a role that was now given to a perpetual and hereditary and official and institutional priesthood. Now, it says later, we find out that Moses was able to enter with Aaron because he was of that same tribe. 
But Moses, as the representative of the people, now his role had been expanded, expanded. It wasn't just resting on one man. It was now given to an entire institution, a hereditary institution of the priesthood. So things had changed. Now we have seen uh, throughout this series that Moses, even as he was superseded here, he would be superseded again and in a more definitive and remarkable way. And Aaron would be superseded and the the priesthood would be superseded and the tent would be superseded and the furniture in the tent would be superseded and the offerings would be superseded because they would have fulfilled their purpose. They were temporary. Even as we keep always going back to that letter to the Hebrews, we find that this was all pointing forward to the one who would come and surpass Moses and surpass Aaron and surpass the tent and surpass the sacrifices. Christ surpassed Moses, Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. Christ surpassed Aaron, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. Christ surpassed the tent and the sacrifices, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. What do we have here when we go back to our text? We have God filled, and then we also have in the last three verses that God led. First he filled, and then he led. After this surprise of Moses indicating that things had changed, it says throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So what do we have here? From this time forth, God led his people by taking up or by leaving the cloud. And so what we have here is this book ends on a very, very positive note. God filled and God led, and the people followed. These people who had said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. What are they doing at the end of the book? They're doing what the Lord led them to do. When he would take up the cloud, they would follow the cloud. When he would remain, they would remain. And so here we have the people literally following the Lord wherever he went. And the final verse emphasizes the totality of the Lord's presence. It talks about day and night all the time. In the sight of all the house of Israel, they could see this. There was no doubt. Visually, God was with them. And it says throughout all their journeys. And then we get to the end. That's how the book ends. And so now the people are poised. It'll be a few weeks journey to go up to the promised land. And then God has said he will give it over to them. And then they will be able to go into Canaan and take possession of the land that he had given to them. Well, I wish that were how it ended. Uh, There is another interruption, and you can read about that interruption in Numbers and, again, in Deuteronomy. But at, at the end of Exodus, we don't want to spoil this because this is a beautiful, positive conclusion to the book. Its, its mission is accomplished. The people were doing what the Lord had commanded them to do, and he was dwelling in the midst of them. Now, throughout this series, we have noticed 
a fourfold fulfillment of this dwelling place. First of all, in Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt, tented among us, and we, what, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the the first fulfillment, the greatest fulfillment. And then we have the Holy Spirit in the church, that the Holy Spirit dwells. Do you not know that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And that's 1 Corinthians 3.16. And then there is also the Holy Spirit in Christians' bodies. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6.19. And then in Revelation 21, the final fulfillment, the new heavens and the new earth. When there will no longer be a specific dwelling, when all of the universe will be the dwelling of the Lord. Now, the idea of Exodus is it's a preparation for all of that. It's pointing us forward. And we can't, we can't refer to Exodus without referring to, to Hebrews. Somebody said, why don't you preach on Hebrews next? I, th- I said, I, I kind of think I just did. Because throughout this, we've been going to the divine commentary on Hebrews. And the, the argument of Hebrews is, how much more? How much more? Hebrews keeps pointing back and saying, but, but folks, how much more? I have to say that I was reading this this past week, and I got a little jealous. This is unusual for me. I don't usually look back and say they had it better, but I thought, how convenient would that be? I mean, cloud goes here. You follow the cloud. This is where I should be, just visibly. I thought, well, that would be kind of simple, wouldn't it? And so I got a little bit jealous. I thought, well, that would be interesting to be able to just say, well, I'm following the Lord. There, there he goes. And I go where he goes. But Hebrew says, no, it's not like that. It's actually the opposite. How much more? How much better do we have it now? They had a, a perishable tent that eventually wore out and disappeared. We have the church of Jesus Christ that will never wear out and will never disappear, but will grow and grow and grow until it fills the entire world. They had Moses, faithful Moses, and less reliable Aaron. We have Jesus, the Son of God, and the faithful great high priest. They had animals and grain and oil and incense to offer up to God. We have Jesus, that perfect sacrifice who offered himself once for all for the sins of his people. They had a piece of God's written word. We have the whole thing, the whole counsel of God written down for our instruction. They had the presence of God in a cloud. We have the Holy Spirit in us and in the church. How much more? But then, if the Israelites were filled and led by God... The same argument holds, doesn't it? How much more? How much more should we be filled and led by God so that we can do, what's the refrain say? As the Lord has commanded. Paul describes something of what that looks like in Galatians. He says, but I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, and here's the description. What's it look like to be led by the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How much more, since we have been given It ends, verse 33, Moses finished it all. He finished the piece that was his. But we have the finished work, folks. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. When he rose again, death was conquered. When he ascended to the right hand of God, he reigns over all, and he will come in glory. We have the finished, complete work that will be consummated when Christ comes again. So how much more? How much more, brothers and sisters, should we be being filled in the Spirit, not just on New Year's Day, not just as an occasional purpose or resolution, but constantly? And how much more should we be led by the Spirit? Let's be being filled in the Spirit on this first day of the week and on every day. Let's be keeping in step with the Spirit every day of our lives and so show that we are the people in whom the Holy Spirit lives. Let's pray. God, it must have been thrilling. The cloud, the thunder, the fire, the trembling, the lightning, all of that. Seeing stones on which you with your finger wrote the glory, the cloud, it must have been thrilling to see all that. But Lord, we have, we have the full picture now. Those were shadows. Those were pointing forward to Jesus. And I thank you that it's not we who should envy them, but they who should envy us. We've gotten the full glimpse. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh God, how much more. How much more should we be filled? How much more should we be led? Oh God, may we be being filled in the Spirit constantly. And may we be being led and keeping in step with the Spirit constantly so that our lives are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control so that it is evident to us and evident to all that we are people in whom the living God dwells. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.